right, I want to invite you to take God's word and turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9. We are focusing in on Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, and uh, truly, really is a privilege every night of this Christmas spectacular to stand here to welcome our guests that are here and then to share the gospel. And uh, thank you for praying and supporting this work. I, I typically, after doing the welcome, will leave the stage and if I can find a seat in the back, I'll take it. Sometimes I just stand it back against the wall uh, because I love watching people's faces as the Christmas Spectacular is going on. And I asked our comms team, who does a remarkable job of capturing what goes on on our campus, both in the room and outside, because what you see is nothing but joy. And I said, I want you to just, just give me your best shots of just capturing the joy of Christmas as people are on our campus. And so you'll see some shots here that our comms people uh, have taken, and it, you just, it, it blesses uh, me as a pastor, and I hope it'll encourage you to see these families here on our campus taking pictures. Look at those smiles. I mean, it's just amazing as these kids are experiencing the wonder of Christmas and uh, just so joyful. I mean, you can see it, uh, you can sense it, you can kind of see it with Lee. You can sense it, you can feel it. There's Darrell, I don't know of anything he can't do. Uh, and it's just all about joy. Our Christmas series is called Unto Us. And it focuses in on verse number six, Isaiah chapter nine, the coming Christ child is prophesied and he's given a fourfold name. We read it, for to us a child is born and to us a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. What we've been doing in this Christmas series is we've been taking a name that is given to this Messiah child, this Christ child, and we've been marrying it up, if you will, combining it with a gift, a present that the arrival of the birth of this child brings with it. Because here's the thing, when Jesus comes, he never comes empty-handed. He's kind of like you grandparents. You know what I'm talking about? Okay, my, my, my mom and dad came in town this week to watch the Christmas Spectacular, and my kids always love when Gammy and Papa comes to town, okay? And uh, they don't just love them because they're Gammy and Papa, of course. Uh, they, they certainly love spending time with them, but it seems that Gammy and Papa never come empty-handed, okay? They always bring something with them. Well, that's Jesus. Uh, when he came, a baby born in a manger, he didn't come empty-handed. As we've studied these last few weeks, we talked about Jesus as wonderful counselor, and he brought with him hope. And this last week, our uh, associate pastor, Scott Riling, preached a message on him being mighty God, and he brought with him light. This week, we're studying and emphasizing Jesus, and this is the title of the message today. We're looking at him as everlasting father. And what does he bring with him? Exactly what we've been talking about this morning, joy. Now, I want to remind us up front of the context surrounding Isaiah's prophecy. It makes the coming of Jesus that much more special, that much more impactful. I want you to remember the Assyrian Empire is on the rise. 
They are on an aggressive expansion campaign, and Isaiah has been prophesying to Judah. Remember at the time, this is a divided kingdom. Israel's to the north, and Judah's to the south. And Isaiah has said, because you are not listening to God, because you're not obeying by his law, living by his rule, judgment is coming. And it is going to be a very dark day. Your future is not going to be favorable. And he is talking about this Assyrian empire that's going to come and capture Israel and be right at the gates of Judah. And he says there will be darkness and gloom. There will be wars and distress. This will be a time of fear and uncertainty and unknowns. But then Isaiah says this. It's not always going to be this way. There's coming a time when this child that is born, this represents the deity of Christ, and this son that is given, this repre- or the humanity of Christ, this son that is given represents the deity of Christ, 100% man, 100% God. And Isaiah says when this child is born, he is going to change everything. We pick up in verse 1 of Isaiah chapter 9. I'll make some comments as we read through it. There will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. So this is where we see the Messiah child bringing hope from. Remember, from the north came enemies. From the north came rejection. From the north came oppression. And Isaiah saying, from the land of Nephtali and Zebulun, the far northern tribes of Israel, hope is going to come. It's going to be in the Galilee of the Gentiles. And what we talked about is Jesus' earthly ministry was right there in Galilee. And if you go to the Holy Land, don't go right now, okay? But when we go back, we'll go when it's safe. Uh, you'll be on the Sea of Galilee, and you can stretch your hands out looking at, off the Sea of Galilee. And 80% of Jesus' ministry happened right there in the Galilee. And so Isaiah is saying, hope's going to come from the north. It's going to come from the land of the Galilee. This is where Jesus' ministry was from. He brings with him light. That's verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. And we talked about Jesus said this of himself. John chapter 8, verse 12. I am the light of the world, and whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And Jesus is the light of the world. He lights up the darkest of night skies. And then look at verse 3. Here's where we get this child bringing joy. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Verse four, for the yoke of his burden, the staff for his shoulder, and the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. We'll work this out in just a moment. For to us, a child is born and the son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So verse 3 emphasizes that joy is coming. And verses 4 through 6 Each start with the word for, 
And it emphasizes for us why we can have this joy, why we're going to have this gladness, and where this joy and gladness come from. And so let's look first at the why. Why can we have joy? Why does this Christ child bring joy? And we're going to see in this the reasons are both literal and spiritual. We'll work it out. Look at verse 4. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder. The rod of his oppressor you have broken on the day of Midian. Now, I want you to think about Israel's history. When Isaiah makes this prophecy, he makes it some 730 years before the birth of Christ. And all Israel has known up to this time is hardship, oppression, and slavery. I want you to think about the 400 years of Egyptian slavery. That would have been fresh in their mind. I want you to think about the 40 years of wandering around in the wilderness where they're going up against all sorts of people like the Canaanites and battling them and the Ammonites and the Midianites as mentioned here in this verse. At the time that Isaiah's making this prophecy, you have the Assyrian Empire raining down on them. Just about three or 400 years later, you'd have the Babylonian Empire come in and take them captive. We know it as the Babylonian Captivity. At the time of Jesus, it's the Romans' heavy hand that is oppressing them and ruling over them. All the people of Israel had known when Isaiah is making this prophecy is a yoke of burden. Discipline that comes from the staff of the shoulders of these ruling nations over them. The rod of oppressors. And yet here, Isaiah speaks... And he says, there's joy coming because there's someone who's going to break the yoke, do away with the staff, remove the rod of the oppressors. And he adds this little descriptive there, and it's, it's beautiful once we get into it. He says, just as he did in the days of Midian. Now, I want you to stay with me on this because Isaiah is painting a picture that his hearers would have readily understood the days of Midian. That would have recalled for them immediately the days of the judges. Now I want you to keep your hand in Isaiah chapter 9, and I want you to turn to your Old Testament book, the book of Judges. Judges chapter 6. And I want you to listen to this passage of Scripture, because again, it's going to give color to Isaiah's prophecy here. It's going to help us understand what Isaiah is saying. I want to begin in verse number one of Judges 6. Listen to what the Bible says. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. I mean, they went for the hills. They couldn't even live where they normally live. Kicked out of the homes. For whenever the Israelites planted the crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. And they would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel, no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up, verse 5, with their livestock and their tents. And they would come, look at this, like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted. So they laid waste the land as they came in. And look at verse 6. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help 
to the Lord. So just bringing up Midian to the people of Israel, it resonates within their soul misery, oppression. But Isaiah says here that just as the heavy and oppressive hand was broken at Midian, so too will it be broken in the future when this Christ child is born. And do you remember how it was broken in Midian? You read Judges chapter 6 and 7 this week in your own time alone with the Lord. Fascinating story. A man by the name of Gideon is raised up as what the Bible refers to as a judge. And he would deliver the people of Israel a victory over the Midianites. Now here's the thing about Gideon. Of his own admission, he was from the smallest clan of the tribes of Israel. And his own admission, he was the runt of the litter. Like, he was the smallest of all of his brothers. He did not think that God could ever use him. But God raises him up, and he actually leads, and this is key, mark this, he is an unlikely man who leads the Israelites to an unlikely victory in a very unlikely way. That's, that's very important. Unlikely man, unlikely victory, in an unlikely way. And you remember the victory? He gets 300 people, and it's a whole story to it, to go against these Midianites who the scripture said their camels and their people can't be numbered. 300 of them. And you know what they do? They don't fight with swords. They get torches and they put them in some jars and they get trumpets, they get the band, okay? And what they do is when God says go, they blow the trumpets, they break the glass jars and they scream out loud. And when they do this, the Bible says the people of Midian, they freak out. And they start killing each other. And God gives them this unlikely victory. Now, incidentally, this is just one of the prophecies why many of the Jewish people reject Jesus as Messiah. Because when he talks about someone coming who's going to break the yoke of oppression, they were looking for a military leader. They're looking for a national leader that's going to uh, restore their national dignity and, and, and conquer nations. And so many people reject the Messiah because it doesn't seem like Jesus has done this. But again, remember what Isaiah is prophesying here. Unlikely man, unlikely victory, unlikely means. And what we see in this prophecy here in verse 4 is a spiritual battle that's taking place. The Christ child comes. He is a very unlikely man. 100% man, 100% God. He secures a very unlikely victory. It's not a physical victory. It is a spiritual victory over sin and death. That's the oppression. That's the rule. And he happens to secure this victory in an unlikely way through the cross. Dying for our sins. And this Christ child, he grows up. And he breaks the yoke of slavery, obeying the law so that we could be made right with God. No more oppression that comes from Satan and sin. And it's impossible to see this before Christ. But now that Christ has come and he's died and was buried and was raised to life, you can't help as Christians but to not see it 
jump off the page. One of the reasons that Isaiah says you can have joy and gladness is because the Christ that was born, the son that was given, has delivered a victory to us through the unlikely means of the cross. And he says you can have joy. We see another reason for joy and gladness in verse Five. It's the second four that is mentioned. Look, for every boot of the ground. Why can we have joy and gladness? For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. So verse four dealt with a spiritual element. It had to do with the first advent of Christ. Jesus comes in his first advent and he's born in a manger in a humble way. Verse 5 has to do with Jesus' second advent. The fact that he is coming again. His first advent, he came fighting a spiritual battle over sin and death. His second advent, he's coming as a reigning king. And he will fight a physical battle and win the war over the nations of this world. This is what Isaiah is prophesying. He puts his ear to the ground, so to speak. And he says, I hear. I hear the boot of the tramping warrior in battle. I hear the Assyrian army coming. And he was looking through the the halls of history. And he could hear the boots of the Babylonians. And he could hear the boots of the Romans at the time of Jesus. Even right now, he could hear the boots of Hamas as they wage war against Israel. He hears it. He sees the blood-stained garments of every battlefield that exists throughout time. And he says, one day, it's going to come to an end. There's going to be an incinerator, if you will. And the wars will cease, and there'll be fuel for the fire. Remember, what what do we teach about the second advent of Christ? What's going to happen? Listen to what Peter tells us is going to happen. 2 Peter 3, verses 10 through 13. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies, look at this, fuel for the fire. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be, ex- be exposed. And Peter says, so what kind of people ought you be during this time as we await the second advent of Christ? He came the first time. He is coming a second time. You ought to live lives of holiness and godliness, he says. And then look at the second part of verse 12. Because the heavens will be set on fire. Fuel for the fire. They'll be dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Isaiah is looking at this future return, a second advent. and says, one day all of the wars are going to cease. Next week during our Christmas Eve services, we're going to talk about the last name of Jesus, the Prince of Peace. And what does he bring with him? Peace forevermore. And Isaiah says, what's going to happen at the end of time, this earth as we know it, it will be dissolved. It will pass away. Revelations chapter 21 says it will be no more. And a new heaven and a new earth will be created and we will live with God forever and ever. It's just another cause for joy 
and gladness. I love this time of the year, uh, listening to Christmas music. I've been listening to it since November 1, all right? That's when I turned my Christmas music on. Don't judge me. Um, I love it. And one of my favorite songs is the traditional I'll Be Home for Christmas. It was originally recorded in 1943. It was Christmas time, and there were thousands of GIs that were fighting in World War II, fighting across the South Pacific and in Europe, and rather than being with their family and celebrating the sights and sounds of the season, they were around the world engaging an enemy. And one of America's most popular singers at the time, Bing Crosby, he recorded this song, and he, he did it as a special gift to the servicemen and women uh, that were serving uh, our U.S. military. And when it came out, it immediately sold over a million copies, went like gangbusters. And these are the lyrics broadcast over radios all over the world. You know the song, I'll be home for Christmas. You can count on me. Please have snow and mistletoe and presents under the tree. Christmas Eve will find me where the love light gleams. I'll be home for Christmas, if only in my dreams. And this song, it pointed people's hearts, specifically those who were serving in the military in far away lands. It painted a picture of a day when the war would be over. Painted a picture of when they'd be back home with their loved ones that they were so far away from. And the song was meant to prompt joy. The war is over. You're with your loved ones. You're able to celebrate Christmas in the right way. In the same way, Isaiah knew that if we could grasp what's taking place here in verse number five, it would prompt joy because one day, the king of kings will return and he will establish his earthly rule and reign and we will live with him forever and ever and ever. And Isaiah says this, this should prompt so much joy in our hearts. Look at this final four. We see why we should have joy and gladness because this Christ child will secure an unlikely victory for us through his death, burial, and resurrection. We see why we should have joy and gladness because the Christ child will grow up and he will be raised from the dead and he will ascend to the Father only to come again and rule and reign. But notice where this joy comes from. Verse six, it'll come from this child who is born, this son who is given. And he's given a name, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. You can have joy today because Jesus, Emmanuel, that baby in a manger, is our everlasting Father. This speaks, if you're taking notes, write this down, of his eternality. That is a word. I looked it up before I wrote it down to preach it, all right? In Christ. He has no beginning or end, always been, always will be. You say, Jared, explain that one to me. I can't. Can't wrap your mind around that, the eternality of Jesus. John attempted to, John chapter one, verses one through three, he said it like this. In the beginning was the word. 
The word was with God. The word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. The miracle of the incarnation is that the eternal God of the universe entered time and space in the person of Jesus. That that baby born in a cave was God. The eternal one from the very beginning, born in a manger. Colossians 1, 16 and 17, for by him, Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. Jesus, speaking of himself in Revelation chapter 1, verse 8, said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God. The totality of all that there is. I am the one who is and was and is to come. I am the Almighty, the Everlasting One. The one to whom the, which the world was created exists outside of time. Wrapped himself in flesh and came to this earth. Everlasting one represents his eternality. It represents his consistency. The scriptures say concerning Jesus, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Think about how incredible that is, church, that we have one that we can rely on. We're able to say that we have faith in someone that never changes. Think about that. Everything in life changes. It's the one constant of life. Change. We get older. Loved ones die. We go through life transitions. I mean, I've got a senior in high school getting ready to graduate. I can't wrap my mind around that. Everything changes. It's a transition. But the everlasting God, he never changes always there talk about bringing you joy through the ups and downs of life we have one that is consistent the psalms describing it as a rock a rock that can't be moved everlasting speaks of his eternalities before all things speaks of his consistency he never changes it speaks of his authority if jesus exists outside of time if he is, as Colossians 1 says, the creator and sustainer of the world, if he is the one who died for our sin, had the power to lay his life down and the power and authority to take it up again, that means he is worthy of our lives. What he says goes. We are but dust of vapor. And he is the everlasting one. Listen to the psalmist. Prayer of Moses, Psalm chapter 90, verses 2 and 3. Listen to the contrast between man and God. First God, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. That's this corner. And in this corner, me and you. You return man to dust. And say, return, O children of man. We are weak people, a vapor. Only by God's grace is our heart beating 
and we're taking in oxygen today. Who are we to say to the eternal one, the one who never changes? Who are we to say, no thanks, I got life on, uh, I got this. I can do life on my own. I don't need you. Who are we to say this? He's the ultimate authority for our lives. And because he's the everlasting one, wherever he leads, whatever he calls, we go. No matter the call, no matter the cost, I always get sentimental this time of the year because it was three years ago, this time period, that we were making the decision to come to Houston. My family and I, 20 years in Dallas, and it's where I met my wife, it's where we were raising our kids, and I knew God had been stirring in my heart something, but I never imagined it would be this. I never imagined it'd be a church in Houston calling me and asking me to consider coming be your pastor, and during that time, uh, I, would, I would go out for runs because I just needed, I, I got four girls at the house. I needed silence. I needed to be able to <laughs> think. And so, so I'd go run, and I would put music on, you know, and just it would, make, it would be prayers. And oftentimes, I would put uh, Champion Force on, 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 you can download Spotify or iTunes or whatever, but it's got a great hymn. Uh, uh, project on there and I would, I would actually listen to your worship team singing some of the, some of the hymns of the faith and, and, and I had this playlist going and there was one hymn that I would listen to and I can remember just weeping and running as I was moving by faith in this and it's that, it's that hymn wherever he leads I'll go, listen to the lyrics take up thy cross and follow me I heard my master say we're talking about authority I gave my life to ransom thee. Surrender your all today. Wherever he leads, I'll go. Wherever he leads, I'll go. I'll follow my Christ who loves me so. Wherever he leads, I'll go. And I'm telling you, it's a moment of surrender in listening to those songs. Saying, God, you have the authority over my life. I don't get to stay somewhere because I'm comfortable or because I like it. You have, because of your innate authority, my only response to you is wherever you lead, I will go. He is the everlasting one. But I don't want you to miss this. He's not just everlasting. He combines that word. He says he is an everlasting father. Now, for those of you that have been in church for a while, we take father, and we, our mind immediately goes to this Trinitarian idea, right? We worship one God and three distinct persons, father, son, and Holy Spirit. And that's another, say, explain that. I can't. All right, another sermon for another day. I did a series called Doctrine back in the spring and did an entire message on the Trinity. But this Isaiah's prophecy is not really referencing the Trinity. He's talking more about the traits that this Christ child, this God-man, will display, display. I want you to think about it in the context of the people. Judah and Israel, who did they have looking over them? They had earthly kings, because that's what they wanted. And nearly every one of them were evil to the core. They didn't look after them like a caring father. They were in it for themselves. All about power, all about their authority. They didn't care for them, they didn't provide for them, they didn't help them. And here the scripture says, this baby that is born, he's gonna change everything because he's gonna be an everlasting father. Now when I say father, some of you, because of your own earthly relationship with your father, I want to check out immediately because your father wasn't there for you. He neglected you. He abused you. He wasn't present in your life. And I understand that. And um, I just stand before you today to say Jesus is an altogether different kind of father. He's caring. He loves you. 
Again, we talk, he's consistent. He's in your corner, interested in you. He is the perfect father image. The writer of Hebrews says, quoting Jesus, said, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. That's the kind of father Jesus is. We're talking about an eternal one that is gentle, that is loving, that is tender, that has your best interests at heart. I'm so grateful for my dad, who's my hero, who I'm, I know I'm lucky to have a dad who loved me and invested in me and cared for me and was a model for me about what it meant to love the Lord. Uh, I can't wait to spend time with him. We're gonna go uh, after Christmas. There, you need to pray for my sweet wife, Debbie, because there's gonna be 16 of us, my brother, family coming in town my sister's family who's here today they're coming in town we're all going to my home my home in Bossier City Louisiana about a 2,500 square foot house there's gonna be 16 of us all right so pray for her and we're gonna have a blast and one of the things we got marked to do all right is me and my brother we may let my brother-in-law go uh, we're gonna go to the, the movie, The Iron Claw. You know, have you heard about this? All right, this is the story of the Von Erichs. I mean, if you're not paying, if you didn't watch wrestling in the 80s, you're doing it wrong, all right? So the Von Erich family. Now, some of my earliest memories as a little boy, my dad would take me to the Shreveport Municipal Auditorium to watch wrestling. And I could watch the Von Erichs and the Freebirds go at it, man, and I loved it. My dad says he, he can remember putting me on his lap and feel my heart beating uh, like crazy out of my chest because, that, man, that wrestling was going on. Me and my brother, we'd go home, and I was Kevin Von Erich, so I'd wrestle with my shoes off and in my underwear, and I made a bandana. Uh, I made a bandana, with, and I put an envelope across the bandana. That's how creative we were back in the day. That was the world championship belt, and me and my brother just go at it, man. We wrestle, and my dad, I'd wrestle with him, and he'd let me pin him. I mean, great memory. I can't wait to go watch the Iron Claw uh, with, my, with my dad, but I think about that, man, and that's I think about those memories. You know what it does for me? It produces joy. And that's what Isaiah wanted to do in the hearts of the people. Like a, like a good earthly father. Multiply at times infinity. That's who Jesus is to you. And that should prompt and bring a great amount of joy. Listen, I'm, I'm winding this down, but let, let me just say this. This week, read the Christmas story. Just read it with fresh eyes. And you can't read the Christmas story without reading joy. When those shepherds break through the midnight sky, Luke chapter two, verse 10, the angel of the Lord said to them, fear not, for I, behold, I bring you good news of great joy for all the people. When the wise men from the east come and they see that star above where the place, the child Jesus was, the scripture says, Luke chapter, uh, Matthew chapter two, verse 10, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. We sing it at the end of the Christmas Spectacular, that great carol of Christmas, joy to the world. The Lord has come, let earth receive her king. You can't think about Christmas without thinking about joy, and you can't read the Christmas story without seeing joy come off the pages. And I just wonder, I just wonder, how many people in here, I mean, if you're, you just be honest with yourself. How many of you are experiencing the fullness of life where Jesus said, I came to give you life, life to its fullest, deep joy. If you're like me, you're watching Christmas movies and you watch them all this time of year and we have a family favorite, it's the old classic, Elf, all right? And can you believe that's, it's 20 years old this year, all right? That does not produce joy in me because it shows me how old I'm getting, but uh, great 
movie. In Elf, you remember the you remember Buddy? He he's recruited to help because the clausometer on the sleigh that measures the spirit of Christmas isn't working. Because the spirit of Christmas is down. And so he's got to get this fixed. And the way that he can bring the spirit of Christmas up is they got to sing for all to hear. I, I thought about that. I thought, I wonder if there was a joy meter. And I could put it up to your heart this morning. What would it measure? Some of you would be pretty low. You're going through your first Christmas without that loved one by your side. Or there's an estranged relationship. Or there's a financial stress. There's been an injustice done recently. Man, if we just put a joy meter on your heart and measure really, really low. Some of you, some of you don't have joy because you're entertaining sin. You're living opposed to God's way of living. And that's a great way to not have joy because sin always overpromises and underdelivers. It'll leave you miserable, regret, pain. It'll sin is a joy stealer. Where do you go to get the joy up? You can't really go to people. I mean, it's great to have friends, the best of friends. But they're not solid and secure, stable and eternal. And isn't it true? Some people are the very ones that we're, don't have joy because of. They're draining our joy. That's, they're the ones that hurt us. Sometimes we go to a, a substance or an unhealthy habit. Another relation, we, th we think this will fill us with joy. But I'm telling you, the only way to have that joy meter start creeping up is to go to the one who's eternal, the one who's constant, never changes, the one who has authority over our life. We go to our everlasting Father. And when you, by faith, have a relationship with the Christ who died on a cross for our sins, was buried and raised to life, I promise you, when you're in a right relationship with him, the end result will always be joy. Amen? Thank you for joining us online. We hope today's experience encouraged and challenged you. At Champion Forest, we are passionate about all kinds of people coming to know God, to grow in their relationship with him and others, and then to go out and make a difference in the world. We would love the opportunity to talk and pray with you. To connect with us, just go to championforce.org connect. And hey, of course, we can't wait to welcome you on campus in person on one of our locations. We'll see you soon.